David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Dear listeners, to improve your experience of this lecture, please refer to the episode page on David's website where you will find a clear illustration of the topography and geography of the area he discusses. You will find the link to the episode page at davidsolomon.online slash podcast. Look for Priests and Princes, Power and Politics, The Rise and Fall of the Hasmonean Dynasty. This episode will be the final lecture released in 2019. We will be taking a short break and will return in the first week of February 2020. Thank you for your interest and support of the podcast. We wish you a Hanukkah Sameach. So, last week we saw how basically one family managed to turn a partisan guerrilla style militia with just a few starting with a few dozen guys over the course of we basically looked last week although we focused uh, 80% of it on really just a, a two to three year period of the actual Hasmonean revolt and the Maccabean revolt really what we looked at last week was almost like a 25-year period in detail if we're looking at by the time we get up to uh, the last of the brothers that is now having fought many many battles and we looked at some of those battles in detail but uh, we got to the point where the last of the brothers of that generation who is Shimon, very good Joan, thank you for saving the group, who was Simon, and, and si- si- remember there was Judah, and uh, John and Elazar, and Jonathan and Simon, Judah was killed in about minus 161, if you recall, uh, Jonathan took over and he went for 20 years, and he really kind of solidified the entity that was known as the New Hasmonean State, uh, but he was uh, killed in uh, minus 142 and then the last of those brothers took over uh, which was Shimon uh, who takes over in around minus 142 is re- after Jonathan's death is really the first of the Hasmonean rulers to solidify uh, a state because he's already starting to not pay tax to the Seleucid overlords and it's not he's they've got sufficient power now and sufficient backing they've also got remember in the background they've got a couple of treaties going on with rome rome recognizes this entity and so it's not worth it for the seleucids even if they feel a bit ambitious to reinvade judea because it's simply not worth it for them and they're actually better off allowing shimon to have a level of autonomy and to run around there calling himself his own state Remember that Shimon is not a king. He is Kohen Gadol. And by the way, his position as Kohen Gadol and leader was in fact voted for. He was kind of like democratically elected amongst the leadership uh, at the time. Uh, I mean, as if they would have gone with anyone else anyway. It was like Shimon or uh, Shimon. But he, uh, he was officially elected. 
and is establishing his own place. That's where we got up to last week. Now, there's something in backgrounding here that I really need to discuss because very often when we look at the history of Israel, of the land of Israel, we sometimes overlook this. And this is very important. And it's important then and it's important now. Because what we're going to talk about tonight is how this very, very tenuous febrile state went on to its next phase. One of the great things about studying the Hasmonean period from A to Z is it's basically exactly a hundred years long and within that very, very condensed time frame you actually get to see how a state begins, forms, grows to strength, peaks and then crashes. Or more like a, 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 a a car wreck in slow motion actually you get to see all that but in order to understand that in relation to Jewish states why that happens to Jewish states you have to be aware of what the Middle East actually is physically what is Israel where does it sit and we all know we can all point to Israel on the map but what actually is it. This is super important to understanding what's going to unfold as we look tonight from Shimon at around minus 140 up until around about 60 which is really what's left and what's going to happen. As you know the land of Israel is very varied topographically. Its geography is complex not just internally but where it sits geographically and geopolitically. So you've got the Sea of Galilee and you've got the River Jordan and you've got the Dead Sea, alright? I know it's not to scale, I know things are not exactly lined up. And let's just put Jerusalem here. And so we know that, you know, Beersheba is here and, and uh, Hebron is here and Bethlehem is here and Shechem or Nablus is here. Now you've got, when you look at the land of Israel, the first thing you realize before we even look at the actual layout of it, and I don't even know how much time I'm going to spend on this. I could spend the whole hour on this or just the next two minutes, but I've got a feeling it's going to be the next two minutes, but it's worth understanding. When you look at the land of Israel geopolitically, you realize that all of the great powers, if they're going to have any extended or enduring influence in conquest and in economics, must control this area. Because this area sits between Asia Minor or Turkey and all the great, and the north here, which is all the great civilizations that were arising there. Mesopotamia is here. Egypt is here, and remember, we're about to go. We're about to go into the Roman Empire and the Roman, Repu the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, where Egypt is going to go on to become the breadbasket of Europe. Effectively, it's not like when we think, ah, oh, Egypt. Egypt was super important then and now. And then here you've got the Mediterranean, so you've got all your access to sea routes, and then here you've got Greece and Italy and off into Europe. 
So on a north-south axis, it's really important. Remember, back in the Hasmonean times, the Seleucid power is here. The Egyptian power is here. The Ptolemies are there. Here's Mesopotamia, which is always wanting a part of things. Persia, the Parthians, whatever entity they're taking on. And so you've got an east-west axis as well. Now, that's just the general importance of the land of Israel. That is the land that God gave to the Jewish people. He didn't just give them anywhere. He gave them the land that acts as the axis. It's almost like saying, you are going to be right at the center of all of these big bullies. And you have to learn how to live in that place. And there's only one way in which you can live in that place. And this is to me, after I say this sentence, I'll probably lose half my audience, but listen. The only way you're going to learn to live in that place is to not play power games. You only have one power. That is your Father in Heaven. You have no other power. If we are going metaphysically, I'm moving obviously off my historical objective soapbox into a more metaphysical rant over here. I'm sure you can see that. But when we look at the Hasmonean period, we see that. But beyond that, here's the important part to understand. Look at the land of Israel. The land of Israel is not this homogenous geography. I know, you're right. I'll regret that later. I know, you're right. First of all, if we look at it, this way, there are three distinct areas. You have here, that's the coastal plain. All right? You have to access the coastal plain if you're going to be a power. And remember, we're opening with Shimon. Shimon's got a febrile state. I'll show you where it is. But the next few leaders are going to try and create a power in the Middle East based in Judea, a Jewish kingdom that is going to be very influential. They don't know how influential. For all they know, they might be the next Babylon. They may take over the entire Middle East, as some people still fantasize about. But first of all, you've got the coastal plain. The coastal plain has three major ports. What are the... Not Haifa yet. We're not Haifa yet. The three major ports then are going to be... Ash, Ash, Ashdod, let's call Ashdod or Ashkelon. That's, Ashkelon is an important point, right? Yafo is an important port. Tyre is an important point, port. And Gaza is an important port, right? In fact, I'd even take out Ashdod and Gaza really at that stage and I'd go Gaza, Ashdod and Ashkelon. I'd say Gaza, Yafo and Tyre in Lebanon are really the three important Mediterranean ports at that point. So you've got to control the coastal plain. Now Shimon, now, oh, well, before we talk about Shimon, then here you've got the Jordan Valley. All right? The Jordan Valley is like a rift that sits between two mountain ranges. The mountain ranges on this side is what we know as the Judean hill chain. That's where Jerusalem is and so on. You can come up, as we looked at it last week, you can approach that hill chain from various angles. But that runs on the western side of the Jordan. And on the eastern side of the Jordan, you've got a similar hill chain, perhaps not as extensive. And then you've got more flat plain as you go into what is today Jordan. All right? 
Now, you need ideally to control all three of these components. If we go northwest, sorry, if we go north-south, you realize that here is the kind of a fertile plain, the Jezreel Valley, which itself is very, very crucial in controlling trade and military routes because otherwise people are going to have to trek through hill country. So if you come into Judea, you're making your way from, from say, here to Egypt or back, you're going to have to, this is the area you want to come through. You've got the Galil, which is strategically very important then and now. And you've got the Negev, which is basically desert and then flows all the way into the Sinai Peninsula and Arabia. These three parts are important. Now, Shimon has a state that is obviously focused and centered in Jerusalem. It's Judea. And it's kind of classical Judea, classical Yehuda. It's more or less that. Although Shimon has now got control, thanks to Jonathan, his brother, and his own efforts, they've more or less got control of a reasonable amount of the coastal plain. They have access to the coast. They don't control the whole coast, but they have control over it. Everybody follow? Now in 137, well in 138, remember I'm in minus now, negative, 138, there's a new Seleucid king comes to the throne called Antiochus VII. Remember from the Hanukkah story, we were talking about Antiochus IV, who's the bad one. His dad was kind of okay and he was the bad one. This is, by this time you've got Antiochus VII, otherwise known as Antiochus Sidetes. And pretty much uh, he's, uh, he's got ambitions to restore the glory of the Seleucid Empire. So, one of the things he does in 137 is he sends a force into Israel, a Seleucid force, not a huge one, it's kind of like a testing force to see how Shimon, how Shimon is going to handle uh, the Seleucid, because if Shimon folds, then it's no problem for the Seleucid Empire to retake Judea. The reason that is an investment that's worth it is because it would start to suddenly open up all the trade, economic and military routes that Antiochus needs. But he's also got issues going on in Parthia. He's got a war with the East, so he can't over-invest. So he sends a test force under a general called Sendebaeus. We're not going into the full details of that battle, but Shimon is already not really a young man. Remember, he's a brother. He wasn't even the youngest brother. He's a brother of Yehuda Maccabi, who fought those wars 30 years ago. He's getting a little long in the tooth. He doesn't really want to be going out on the battlefield. He's already Kohen Gadol. He's high priest, as well as kind of ethnarch. So he sends his two sons. And his two sons uh, Judah, named obviously after uh, the older brother, and John, or Yohanan. We'll call him John. His name is Yohanan, really, but for the purpose of this talk, we'll call him John. And Judah and John, or Yehuda and Yohanan, 
inflict a fairly crushing defeat on Sendebaris's force. We understand it was probably about 6,000 men, but it was enough to convince Antiochus that it, a military excursion into this new state was not going to be worth it. This was the official area of the new state. It was classic Judea, but its reach, its reach was much more. They could militarily control Samaria, they could military control parts of the coast, and they had military control over some of the south. It wasn't going to be worth it for Antiochus. So Antiochus, once again, went back to a policy of allowing Shimon to be, and better to have him as just someone he leaves alone and is happy to be left alone than to have him as an enemy. But then in 134, a very strange thing happens, and historians are really not sure what um, happened. But despite the fact that he's Kohen Gadol, Shimon has a daughter, as well as the couple of sons I just spoke about. He has a daughter, and this daughter gets married to an Egyptian official in the Seleucid, in the Hellenic uh, Seleucid Empire. Well, maybe he's not so much in the Seleucid Empire, but he's... He's some sort of disaffected Egyptian. We don't really know much about him. His name is Ptolemy, son of Abubus. But we do know that he is the governor of Jericho. Remember that there are towns scattered on either side of the Jordan, especially in the Transjordan, that are kind of independent Greek cities or, or polices. And they don't really owe allegiance to anyone except themselves but they will allege to whoever they think is the bigger force around for their own protection. Ptolemy is the governor of Jericho and Shimon has married his daughter to him. And we don't really understand why that is. If we had a time machine, we could go back and go, how did you do that? Maybe Ptolemy had made some sort of conversion or public acknowledgement to Judaism or whatever, but it's very strange that Shimon, who is at the forefront of a non-assimilationist movement, political, religious, social movement, would then have his daughter marry to a non-Jewish governor of a local town. It sounds very practical to do that for political and military purposes, but it doesn't sound very kosher. At any rate, what we do know is that in minus one, three, four, Ptolemy in Jericho invites Shimon and his son Judah to dinner and at dinner he kills them I know and in fact so horrendous is that that who has read um, uh, the Divine Commedia by Dante right so Dante writes there, he actually says that, that Ptolemy is sitting in that level of hell, which is the level of hell reserved for people who are um, uh, evil to their guests, right? And he actually says, it's almost like a classic example of inviting someone for dinner and killing them. And he then, of course, sends soldiers to find John. Now, what you read between the lines is that, in fact, Ptolemy was set up to do this probably by a bigger power up here because 
John suddenly inherits the New Hasmonean state and he's got quite a few issues on his hand. Not only is he freaking out because his father and his brother have just been killed. John wasn't expecting to become king, but he's now got a situation where Antiochus is threatening to fill the vacuum. So he goes to Jerusalem and indeed within a year, within a year of that event, Antiochus is on the move into the land of Israel towards Jerusalem with a huge force. And he comes to Jerusalem and he sieges it. This is the famous siege of Antiochus VII in around minus 132. And at this siege, and I want to talk about this siege for a minute because Jerusalem has been sieged many times, but this siege was remarkable. Anyone know anything about this siege? This siege, well, first of all, what historians tell us, when, we say, when I say historians, we've got different, as I said last week, we have different kinds of sources for this. Obviously, Josephus is writing much later. The book of Maccabees is closer to it, and maybe Josephus was getting most of his stuff from the book of Maccabees. But we also have quite a few statements sprinkled throughout the Talmud, which are recording historical traditions about this period. But what we understand was that the people inside the city had water because the defences of Jerusalem, as you know, are built around whatever water sources are there. And that's a whole other thing. But they had no food. And the sieges on the outside, Antiochus' army, had food, but they had no water. But after a while, John, this completely inexperienced, suddenly thrust upon him. I've not only just inherited this Hasmonean state, I've now got to defend it against a Seleucid emperor, personally, with his army. And he makes a decision that is a decision that uh, different people have argued about whether it was the right decision or not to make, but certainly the population didn't like it. And that was that he told everybody in Jerusalem who was not going to be participating in the active defense of the city to leave. That was interesting, but not terribly cool because all of these people, and basically what you're talking about therefore is the very old, the very young, the women, sick, whatever, anyone who's not going to be, I mean, probably some women stayed because they wanted to help with the fighting, but anyone who wasn't going to help with the fighting was suddenly outside the walls. But being outside the walls meant that you were in fact stuck between Jerusalem and Antiochus's army. And naturally there was mayhem. Antiochus let a few people go past the lines and get on their way. But here's the remarkable thing. And, 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 and I want you to remember, this, this is worth remembering, especially in the context of what we're going to talk about later on. Antiochus VII is sieging Jerusalem, but as he's sieging Jerusalem, he knows what Jerusalem is. He knows about the temple in Jerusalem. He knows what the temple of Jerusalem represents. 
He's heard about the God of Israel. He knows that the Jewish people have a God. He knows that God is worshipped at the temple. And he also knows that it's permitted for non-Jews, and especially emperors, to send sacrifices to the temple and send gifts to the temple while he's sieging Jerusalem Antiochus VII sends a korban, a sacrifice, to be sacrificed at the temple to God. It's an amazing thing, and they actually sacrifice it. In other words, the conflict, the political conflict, was kind of a very, very separate thing from acknowledgement of the importance and spirituality of what was going on in the temple. Extremely interesting. Anyway, this siege lasted for a year. And then Antiochus agreed to have a truce that was proposed by John. He agreed to have a truce, and that truce was for Sukkot. That all the people that were stuck outside the walls because they'd been kicked out were allowed back into the city for the festival of Sukkot. During that festival, it so happens that Antiochus was getting a bit antsy-pantsy because he really needed to take his army elsewhere. And so when John proposed a ceasefire, not just a ceasefire for Sukkot, but now in a full armistice deal, Antiochus accepted it. The deal was, first of all, obviously, John has to pay a lot of money. Secondly, he has to sign up to not aid any of Antiochus's enemies in any wars. In fact, on the contrary, if Antiochus calls on him, he's going to have to send military units with Antiochus wherever Antiochus has to go and do stuff. And the third was, and John agreed to, is that they would tear down the walls of Jerusalem. That way, John was made certain that if there was going to be any hanky-panky, that Antiochus would be back with an army and it wouldn't need to siege at this time. He'd just walk straight in. And all of those conditions were agreed to. So for a while it seemed that the independent Hasmonean state was going to become once again a vassal state, going more or less back, say, to the early years of the Jonathan rule, rather than where Shimon had taken it to much more independence. Where did John get the money? And here we see at the beginning of John's reign in dealing with the siege from Antiochus that John is going to form a very complex relationship with a certain bank. <laughs> I call it a bank because really there's no other really way of talking about it. There was a place in Jerusalem which was like a reserve bank where a lot of gold and silver was deposited over a long period of time. Emperors in the past who had invaded Jerusalem thought that the reserve depositories of gold and silver must be kept in the temple. And certainly there were some kept in the temple, especially for all the purposes and functions that the temple needed in its institutional running, but it wasn't the main jackpot. The place where it was all really being kept was, sorry, in Jerusalem. The tomb of David. 
Kever David, which is on, well, now we understand, now we believe it's on actually Mount Zion there, just inside the Zion Gate of the old city, but we're not entirely sure exactly where it was then. John raids the tomb of David, takes out 3,000 talents of silver and pays Antiochus. People kind of overlooked that a little bit because it was a necessity, but they didn't like it. It was regarded as a problem. So already John is in trouble with the population. He's had to knock down the walls of Jerusalem. He's had to, he's been invaded. He's kicked people out of Jerusalem and he's emptied out the main reserve deposits of gold and silver in Jerusalem. This represents the first phase of John's king, sort of like rulership. He's not calling himself king. John takes the position of high priest and is probably closer to something we would call an ethnarch. That is that he is ruling over a distinct ethnic population and religious population here. But after a few years, once we get into the 120s, you see Antiochus himself dies in 129. He's killed in Parthia in a war. A war, by the way, where John actually sent units and went himself to help fight Antiochus VII under his agreement. Antiochus VII was killed in one of those wars. Once again, alienating his own local population because he wasn't around. He was off busy fighting wars for Seleucid emperors. So by the time he comes back in the mid-120s, he's got some PR building to do and he's got to solidify his bona fides as who he is. So over the course of the next few years, especially because the Seleucid Empire is now seriously breaking up and there really is a power vacuum here, John goes conquesting, if such a word can exist. And we know, we know that he has successful conquests right over here and he populates the Galilee. He doesn't officially claim control over it, but he severely populates it. He's got military forces right there. He conquers the river, the Jordan River, and then he does something remarkable. Now in the south of Israel, in the Negev area and here, there is, of course, a whole distinct population living here, and I'm going to talk about them soon. But there is an important people that's been living south of the Dead Sea, and they are called Idumeans. They are Edom. Edom is an ancient people. They're mentioned in the Torah. The Edomites have been living here for a long time. The Idumeans, in fact, have built up something of a complex relationship with Judah because the Idumeans were part of the Babylonian destruction of the first temple. Right? I mean, have a look at Psalm 137. Yep. Remember God to the sons of Edom the day on which they said, destroy the foundations of Jerusalem. They really got in there with the Babylonians. And that enmity had built up and there was a complex relationship but because Judah had been a fairly relatively powerful entity, there had also been some kind of economic servitude going on for a while. In any event, John, who by now has got the surname Hyrcanus, we know him in history as John Hyrcanus. 
we're not even really sure what the word Hyrcanus is really supposed to signify. He goes and he takes his army and he conquers the Idumeans as part of his expansionist project because if you're really going to consolidate your strength you've got to control all the different areas of the land of Israel as we discussed before. This is an important area. He conquers the Idumeans and for the first time in Jewish history he forcibly converts them. This is the first forced conversion really in Jewish history of an entire nation. He takes all the men and he circumcises them. And then he takes the entire nation and he tells them to immerse in the River Jordan. He gives them Mila and Mikvah and says, you're now Jewish. That would be exactly like in 1967 when Israel conquered the West Bank if they had taken all of the local Palestinian population and forcibly converted them to Judaism said you're now Jewish not only here is your Israeli passport but you're Jewish that's had, it they already had a bris, they already had a bris. <laughs> whatever but he says we're not going to recognize you as Jewish that would that would be the same what Jochanan Hirkonos did was remarkable but obviously a lot of people thought it was a shtickle problematic then and now. The famous conversion of the Idumeans has gone down in Jewish history as one of the more questionable things that a Jewish leader has ever done because it happened to have a very problematic karma attached to it as the consequence of that Idumean conversion that we'll look at shortly. And then, because we need to move on from Yochanan Herkunas, because we could spend all our time on Yochanan Herkunas, just let me see the time, because I really need to talk about... Oh, okay. We need to move on from Yochanan Herkunas, because it's a fascinating... He is really the one that takes Shimon's very febrile state, survives the incursions, the last gasping incursions of an attempting to expand Seleucid Empire, but then is able to create something much more stable that he then inherits onwards something much more stable that now comprises a considerably enlarged area over which he is the ruler. It's impossible to understand the next 50 or 100 years of Jewish history without just spending a minute on one very important theme that happens during John Herkonus's career. And that is that, and I've spoken about this before, but I'll just give a brief summary again, is that during this time, and probably by the time we get to John Hyrcanus, so, you know, like John Hyrcanus rules from basically 134 when he takes over from his father Shimon to about 104, so about 30 years. Sometime prior to this, probably already 30 or 40 years prior to this, probably, probably after the revolt against the Hellenistic rule where 
spiritually Jews were allowed to express themselves much more freely, what then comes to the fore are two very different perspectives on what Judaism actually is. It's just the sort of problem that you would have if you were being ruled by priests. And the two different perspectives are famously embodied in what really were at the time almost two different religions within Judaism itself. Almost like the closest we've probably ever had to like a Shia-Sunni split. But much more different than that. One of these perspectives was what we now call the Tzdukim, or in English, the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed in the primacy of the written Torah. If the Torah says it, that's our religion. And it's no accident or coincidence, say the Sadducees, that the great central bulk of the Torah, such as the books of Leviticus, deal with stuff that priests have to do because priests are really the center of the whole nation. The temple is the central focus of the priests. It's all about the temple. It's all about the priests. And not just any priests, but priests who are of a particular aristocratic class. The Sadducees famously did not believe in any of the new fandangled ideas that were going around, such as an afterlife or this thing that you guys are calling the oral Torah or your lunar calendar or many of the other things that the Sadducees found deeply problematic. They had developed a completely temple-centric, priest-centric Judaism. They had their own ways of looking at things. And they were very, very influential. They were an entire sect within the priesthood in this internecine Kohanic war. The other famous group that was much less aristocratic and much more kind of in touch with the common people because they weren't concerned so much with defining religion as a very hard set of rules that were mostly about priests. They were, of course, known as the Prushim, the Pharisees, who obviously, you know, the word Pharisees in English has taken on a different cultural connotation after Christianity, but it's just a translation of the Prushim. And the Prushim are concerned with the dynamic interpretation of the Torah towards an oral Torah that interprets the written Torah according to traditions received, principles of interpretation, and guiding principles such as the dignity of human beings. They are coming up with some of the most tremendous insights of Judaism, as well as some of its immense ideas. They are talking about the idea of 
afterlife. They are talking about ideas of the soul. They are talking about ideas of a messianic age. They are talking about how not everything, the Torah is not necessarily lived according to how you read it in its written form. It must be dynamically interpreted according to the traditions that we have received. Now, that split might sound like an obscure philosophical discussion, but it's going to become very, very intense. It would appear at the beginning of the Hasmonean revolt that Matityahu and his sons were more or less allied with the Prushim. Remember that Matityahu was not an active priest, partly because obviously the temple itself had come under the corruption of Hellenistic elements, but he was not an active priest and his his rebellion was joined by groups such as the early Hasidim, nothing to do with 18th century Hasidim, but a different sect of Hasidim, pious observers of the traditions. So in, and plus he was a, there was a family with the common touch, they knew lots of people. They were aligned with the Pharisees. And so were the Maccabean brothers until about halfway through John's career, and John's time at the head, where as high priest, he starts to move politically and religiously more and more towards the Sadducean side. Now the Talmud brings a number of different examples of this, a number of different ways in which they speculate as to why this happened. But at the end of the day, historians are not entirely sure why this happened. But we do know that it happened. He alienated the rabbis. And the rabbis themselves were not always as respectful to him as they possibly could have been. The rabbis were not happy that a high priest was abrogating to himself this much power. Political leader, military leader, religious leader worried the Pharisaic faction. And there were questions about just how kosher the family actually was. Some of that was absolute slander, but it was just effecting an alienation between John. By the end of his reign, Oh, and also the Prussian were very, very unhappy about the fact that John, towards the end of his rule, went back to the tomb of David and took money out of there again because he needed to hire a mercenary professional army. His conquests were now getting extensive enough that the Jewish army alone was not enough to defend it. He needed mercenary armies and he paid for them out of effectively the reserve bank funds. This once again alienated the Pharisaic faction. So we know that by the time John dies in 104, the high priesthood and the Hasmonean family, is, the Maccabi family, is fairly firmly entrenched inside the Sadducean political faction. <sighs> when John is dying, He says to his wife that he wants her to retain as much of the civil authority 
until as she can and he would vest his son Judah Aristobulus John Hyrcanus his son is Judah Aristobulus he has several sons but Judah Aristobulus takes over the position of high priest Judah Aristobulus is not happy with just being high priest he wants to be like his dad he wants to be high priest and ruler so he takes his mother and his brother he has a brother he has a brother called Alexander Yanai and he takes his mother and his brother and he puts them in prison and assumes rule for himself except that he says I'm not just high priest and ruler there's absolutely nothing in the world to stop me from issuing the following sentence I am high priest and king and if anyone doesn't like it they can come here and tell me and no one did he kept his mother in jail oh you think that's bad he didn't just keep his mother in jail he starved her to death his mother died of starvation in prison and that kind of thing also has bad karma don't do that don't let your mother starve in prison because and there's no one on the planet who didn't think that what happened to Judah Aristobulus was not a kind of comeuppance for that because he was dead within a year of some tremendous debilitating disease that came upon him there were a number of cruel and unusual deaths associated with the 12 months that Judah Aristobulus the first was on the throne uh, his brother was killed by his own guards due to a whole palace intrigue a lot of very strange things going on I don't want to spend too much time on Judah Aristobulus one of the things that Judah Aristobulus did do though was <clears throat> you see if you're a Hasmonean king you're not really on the map until you've annexed somewhere so he annexed the Galil so by now by now the Judean state the Hasmonean Judean state has seriously expanded now they've got the whole coast just about uh, you never conquered they never conquered Ashkelon really but the whole coast right down underneath in Jumea right all the way up to the Galil and even parts of the Golan starting to look like a seriously interesting state Yehuda Aristobulus has a wife I would say that if you were to pick the three or let's say five most fascinating women in Jewish history his wife would be one of them her name is Shlom Tzion sometimes in English you'll see that written as Salome but there were several Salome's so don't get confused it's not the Herodian Salome you say the word Salome and Christians go oh Salome Salome but it's not that Salome it's Shlom Tzion uh, and she was it started really her historical picture as the wife of Judah Aristobulus when Judah Aristobulus dies from gut rot or whatever it was he died from she releases his brother 
from prison, Alexander Yanai, appoints him high priest and king, just like his brother was, and marries him. And the rabbis were seriously pissed off. <laughs> Why? Sounds very good. Brother dies, no children. The brother's wife marries the brother. We know that process as yibum, leverant marriage. What's the problem here? Why did people not like it? Yeah, sure she's Jewish. Yes. No, she was Jewish on crack. Her brother, her brother, Shlom Tzion's brother, was one of the most famous of the early Tanaim, Shimon ben Shetach. Yeah, no, no, I'm saying it's a, I'm, no, I'm, Sarah, I'm really, agree, I'm really pleased you raised that, because that means I was actually able to say that fact, Shimon ben Shetach. So she's definitely Jewish. What's the problem? Priests can do ye boom, but not high priests. A high priest must only marry a virgin. Therefore, therefore, it was problematic from the start. Now, Alexander Yanai takes over this kingdom from his brother, married to his brother's widow. But they're a very powerful couple. She is, as I said, her brother is a leading Pharisee. So she's got more Pharisaic inclinations. But of course, she is married to a big king allied with the Sadducees. So her ability to affect Pharisaic influence is very limited. And Alexander Yanai goes on a conquesting rampage. Uh, shows up all Judean control over the whole coastline. Uh, solidifies, builds forts. Was, and then, and then, I mean, this is, they say that there's different phases to Alexander Yanai's kingship. It's going to go on for almost 30 years and it's got distinct phases. But in the first phase, it's definitely quite a successful phase of conquest and consolidation as king. Remember the breakdown of the Seleucid Empire and the vacuum there. Egypt's not really strong enough to counter uh, Alexander Yanai. He's now got armies. Uh, he's also got a whole lot of Idumean uh, support now because he can take from the population of Idumea for his army. By the way, by the way, Idumea is now officially Jewish, of course, so they can have their own Idumean Jewish governor, which they do. And Idumea during Alexander Yanai is governed in the name of the Hasmonean kings by Antipater, who is an Idumean Jew who rose, very, very talented, very talented guy who rose and will, he will come back into the picture and that's why I put him there. But Alexander Yanai, has got, and then Alexander Yanai gets a little over ambitious. You see, it's not like he's sitting here 2200 or 2200 late years later going, oh, we know what happened. He doesn't know where this could end. For all he knows, remember, we're getting this kind of idea that maybe, oh, maybe the Hasmonean state is it. Maybe this is the big one. 
And maybe the messianic age is not necessarily brought in by a descendant of the house of David, but in fact by a descendant of the house of Aaron, by a Kohanic Messiah. These ideas are coming to the fore, although they're not so much coming to the fore for Yanai because he basically doesn't believe in them. He's a Sadducean ruler and he's just conquesting all over the place. But he gets a bit ambitious and he takes on these guys, the Nabataeans. Now, you know who the Nabataeans are because during the course of this century, just in the previous few, over the course of the last few decades, the Nabataeans who were based here have built Petra. The Petra we know today, the unbelievable city carved into the rocks was built by the Nabataeans while John Hyrcanus and Alexander Yanai are running around pretending they don't exist. But the Nabataeans themselves were incredibly inventive, but also expansionist. And they, in the vacuum created by the breakdown of the Seleucid Empire, the Nabataeans began to conquer northwards and eventually conquered Damascus. Amazingly, I mean, when you go and see Petra, when you read about Petra, you don't realize that the guys who built Petra started in Petra and then created a little mini shtickle empire that went as far as Damascus. The Nabataeans were amazing, and Yanai took them on and lost. And the Nabataeans therefore retook some of the Transjordan areas and even some of this area that. Uh, Yanai had taken earlier and so he suffered his first major setback. He doesn't know where it's going to end, he thinks he's going to be the next big thing but he hits this limit. And that maybe historians tell us is why the next phase of Yanai's kingship is so problematic because he's reached the limits of his expansive ability and then he gets caught up in a very, very inward conflict. He, in about minus 90, Alexander Yanai comes to the temple on Sukkot as high priest king. Now on Sukkot, on the festival of Sukkot, there was this incredible ceremony that used to take place, not just in the temple, but right across Jerusalem, a festival of it was a tremendous joy and like lots of lights and fires, but it was a water festival. It was basically one great big water fight on the Temple Mount. People just pouring buckets of water everywhere. It was a big festival. And uh, Alexander comes down and he says, uh, we're not going to be having that this year. That's some Pharisaic nonsense. We're not going to have it. And you don't just cancel something like that without upsetting a lot of people. And so the entire populace inside the temple threw their etrogim at him. He was pelted with etrogs. At which point he turned around and commanded his forces to slaughter the entire crowd in the temple. And Estimates vary as to whether there were between two and six thousand people in the temple at the time, but 
Alexander Yana didn't care who threw the etrogs or not, he had them all slaughtered. This was the beginning of a civil war that lasted for years, that soaked up just about everything that was going on in the land of Israel and the Hasmonean kingdom. It was a civil war primarily between the Pharisaic and the Sadducean factions. It was a religious civil war, but it really, really sucked in the entire population. Historians estimate that over the course of the next eight to ten years, at the height of this, which represent the height of this civil war, that something like 50,000 people lost their lives in this war. This was a horrendous blight on the Hasmonean dynasty. But we also know from various sources, including the Talmud, which really is not a fan of Alexander Yanai, we know that towards the end, he kind of figured that, he kind of worked out what some of the problems were, such as it really was his role not to take part in that war, but to actually try and effect a resolution between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Make no mistake, at one point he took 800 Pharisaic leaders and crucified them. <clears throat> that is why when you read the accounts of Mishnaic leaders and the chain of Torah transmission, there's a whole gap that happens there because Alexander Yanai basically wiped out the entire intelligentsia of the population. But right at the end of his kingship, he realized that really that wasn't what was meant to have happened. He also realized that you needed, the society needed a separation between its religious and its civil leadership. You couldn't have a situation where the high priest and the ruler and the king were the same person. It really, really didn't work very well. So he said to his wife, Shlom Tzion, on his deathbed, I want you to take over the civil administration and in other words very similar to his father his, his father Yohanan Hyrcanus and Alexander Yanai both had the same idea that really perhaps this Hasmonean state would do well if it was run by queens Men can be high priests and the women in the family can run the state. Alexander Yanai and Shlom Tzion have two sons. There's no room for me to write them here, so I'm going to do them over here. Their two sons are... Watch carefully because you'll get confused. And if you're asleep right now, I hope you're not asleep this moment because when you wake up you're going to be really confused when you look at the board. So, John Hyrcanus the second and Yehuda Aristobulus the second. They didn't call them the second. We call them that because we, within one or two generations, you've got a John Hyrcanus and Yehuda Aristobulus here. And yet, Alexander Yana and Shlom Tzion's two sons were called John Hyrcanus and Yehuda Aristobulus. Everybody follow? So, Alexander Yana says to Shlom Tzion, let's give John Hyrcanus 
the high priesthood, and you, Shlom Tzion, take the civil leadership. And with those words, Alexander Yanai dies. Well, I don't know if he dies with those words, but that's basically it. He was a very, very tough king. A very, very tough king. Presided over a civil war, absolutely despotic, didn't really brook any kind of opposition, was completely focused on conquest, external conquest, external consolidation. He eventually, actually, in the last few years, when he mellowed out a bit, he actually managed to regain some of the land that he'd lost to the Nabataeans. So he actually ended with quite a sizable kingdom. But no one really talks positively about the time of Alexander Yanai. John Herkonus has a much better rap in Jewish history than Alexander Yanai, even though they're all streets in Tel Aviv. And so John Herkonus becomes high priest and his mother Shlomtzion becomes queen. Shlomtzion Hamalka. And the first thing Shlomtzion says is she outs herself as a Pharisee. She says, I'm allied with the Pharisaic faction. Everybody knows that. There's been a civil war. And she says to the rabbis, I'm going to give you the controlling power on the Sanhedrin, which is the court of 70 that was deciding many of the religious and administrative matters I'm going to give you the lion's share of power there but I'm going to have a state funeral and burial for my late husband with full honours and you are all going to be there paying respects it was a very very important symbolic act that she did to try and reconcile the two opposing forces. Everybody, all of the sources, the Book of Maccabees, Josephus, the Talmud, all of the sources talk about how amazing were the nine years that Shlomtzion was in charge. If anything proves that this state perhaps should have had queens and not kings, it's the rule of Shlomtzion Hamalka. There was a complete peace. It was a completely independent Hasmonean Jewish state. The Pharisees and the common people felt that they were participating in that state. There were no wars. The rabbis were so impressed with that period that they even tell us that nature itself grew big. There was tremendous productivity. Shlomtzion was one of the most remarkable rulers we've ever had. And there may be nine or ten years where it's never been better. The people of Israel, peacefully, in the land of Israel. And then, unfortunately, Shlomtzion passed on. And that's when we get to the real crux of the whole business because as you can imagine it got ugly pretty quickly uh, John Hyrcanus the second is high priest 
And about three months into that, um, Yehuda Aristobulus, his brother, kicks him out. When I say he kicks him out, he comes with us, you know, a band of ruffians and basically stands over him and says, you don't really want to be a high priest. And John Hunkiner says, you know what? Actually, I don't. And he leaves. Funnily enough, funnily enough, Yochanan Hirkanus, from the historical impressions we can gain of him, may well not have wanted to be high priest. He was a fairly retiring kind of guy. He wasn't really one of these go-getters. Some historians say that he was weak. But I don't think weakness is it. I just think that he was just someone who didn't really need this entire exercise. But nevertheless, his parents had made him high priest. But when Yehuda Aristobulus showed just how much he wanted it and was threatening to use force, Yochanan Herkonos was not going to put up a fight. And so he left Jerusalem and Yehuda Aristobulus became high priest and appointed himself as a ruler as well. Now someone in this entire picture was not happy with that. Can you guess who it was? I'll tell you. It was this guy called Antipater. The governor, the Jewish Idumean governor of Idumea. Who figured that he was not going to have as much influence or as much control or able to get things done the way he wanted them with Aristobulus on the throne. He'd much rather have John Hyrcanus because John Hyrcanus II was much more reliant on his tremendous administrative and military capabilities. So as soon as Yehuda Aristobulus kicks his brother out of Jerusalem, Antipater goes to John Hyrcanus and says, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And John Hyrcanus says, I don't know. I'm going to hang out. I mean, I'm sure my brother will give me enough to live on. I don't want high priest. He can have it if he wants. I just want a retired life. And Antipater said to him, but you're not going to get a retired life. You're going to get a retired death. Because he's not going to just chill at home going, oh, John Hyrcanus is wandering around somewhere. He's going to have you killed. And John Hyrcanus goes, oh, how do I avoid that? And Antipater says, I'll tell you how you avoid that. You're going to go and hang out with my mate, Aretas. In fact, Aretas III, the king of the Nabataeans in Petra. Antipater himself had married a Nabataean noblewoman. He had strong connections with the royal family of the Nabataeans. He was a mate of Aretas. And he organized for John to hang out with Aretas III for his protection. At the same time, Antipater is always in the background whirling the wheels of historical mechanics. And within a short amount of time, he has convinced John Hyrcanus that it's in his interest to retake the high priesthood and the throne 
and the temple. And John Hericanus probably said something like, well, how am I going to do that? And Antipater said to him, because I've organised for you to do it with Aretas and his army of 50,000 men. And so, in around 65, 64, John Hyrcanus and Aretas lead an army of 50,000 men on Jerusalem to reclaim the temple for Hyrcanus. This wasn't just about brothers, because there was also the whole Sadducee-Pharisee thing behind it. It's difficult at this stage sometimes when you look at the career of John Hyrcanus and it's complex to work out whether he was more aligned with the Pharisaic or the Sadducean faction. But it's fair to assume that in terms of the populace's view of these things, that Hyrcanus, as a follower of his mother, would have been more aligned with the Pharisaic faction and Yehuda Aristobulus was a, Saris, was a Sadducean because he'd locked himself in the temple with a whole bunch of Sadducees. They arrive in Jerusalem and they siege it. This is the first siege since Antiochus the seventh. So it's uh, the last siege of Jerusalem had happened about 70 years earlier, or 65, 70 years earlier, and this is the next siege. Sorry? So I don't think they had built walls again. So this time it's a siege of the temple. In fact, in fact, it, it is because uh, because uh, we'll know that from what's going to happen um, now. This was a horrendous siege. This was not, even though this was all about Jews, this was not a foreign force. Obviously, the Nabataeans were a foreign army, but they were being led by Jewish forces to recapture the temple. And there are quite a number of stories that come out of this that are pretty horrendous. One of the interesting stories is, is that, just in relation to what I spoke about earlier, about Antiochus VII, and his sending a sacrifice to the temple, well, it got to Pesach during this siege, and the priests inside the temple were saying, we need a lamb for the paschal sacrifice, but we don't have a lamb, so they sent out messages to the Pharisaic forces that were outside the temple, saying, can we have a paschal lamb for the sacrifice? And Hyrcanus' forces said, yes, you can have one, but it'll cost you a thousand drachma. They get the thousand drachma together and they send it to them and Hyrcanus's forces, in return for the thousand drachmas, sent a pig. That's according to one version. According to another version, they just kept the money and didn't send anything. But there was tremendous enmity between these two sides. When the rabbis later on Look, the temple's not going to be destroyed for another 130 years. But when the rabbis later on said that the second temple was ultimately destroyed because of groundless and baseless hatred, this is exactly the kind of thing they were talking about. We had a civil war between brothers over the Temple Mount itself. One of the most famous mystical Jewish spiritual figures at the time was a kind of folk prophet called Choni Hamagel. Choni the circle drawer, 
He was famous for drawing a circle on the ground and saying to God, I'm not going to leave this circle until rain falls during a time of drought. And he was known as a big miracle worker. Hyrcanus' forces asked him to pray for the success of their siege. Honi Hamagel looked up to God and said, God, I am asking you not to heed the prayers of either side in this dispute because they are both wrong. As a result of which, according to some sources, Hyrcanus' forces stoned Honi Hamagel to death for simply not praying for the success. Of course, the Talmud famously has another story about what happened to Choni HaMagal as a result of that, and it's absolutely brilliant. We don't have time to go into it now, but some of you would be familiar with it. The famous story that's told in the Talmud, because we didn't, he didn't die during that conflict. He actually, uh, that was the time that Choni HaMagal actually went to sleep, and he slept for 70 years. The famous, it's the, it's the proto Rip Van Winkle story. He really, he went to sleep for 70 years. The Talmud goes into great detail about this. He went into some coma for 70 years and he woke up and then he went to the study house and no one recognized him and no one knew who he was. And people were saying, oh, Honey Hamagal used to be here and he would answer all our questions. And he'd be saying, I'm him, I'm him. And they just like kicked him out of the study house for being a fool. But uh, that siege was incredibly intense. And it was really only broken, it was really only broken because of an intervention. And that intervention was going to change history completely. Because that intervention came from here. Because here, in what is now Syria, had arrived, had arrived the Roman conqueror of this entire area, Pompey Magnus. Pompey is in Syria and he gets delegations from Judea to intervene in the great dispute. It's complex, the details. We don't have time to go into detail. I'm going to wrap up. Uh, but basically, in absolute summary, uh, uh, Pompey ordered Aretas' army to leave Jerusalem. And no one at that point was going to say no to the Romans uh, when they're given instructions. So Aretas leaves. As it happens, Aristobulus' forces inflicted some pretty bad damage and casualties on Aretas' army when he was coming back and then Pompey said and now I'm going to decide on this dispute. He uh, first was inclined to let Aristobulus keep his position uh, but Aristobulus was a little too keen and did some things before Pompey actually was ready for him to do them and he uh, eventually uh, decided for in favour of uh, Hyrcanus and in fact uh, Yehuda Aristobulus ended up getting carted back to Rome. Uh, so John Hyrcanus ends up ultimately uh, for the last few years of the Hasmonean destiny as high priest but the, any, in, any thought of independence, I mean 
Pompey goes to Jerusalem himself to sort this out and to install Hyrcanus. He turns up at the temple famously in the year minus 63 with an entire Roman legion. I mean, he was effectively invited by us to come and solve the dispute. He comes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. He walks into the inner court, past the place where Gentiles are not supposed to go. Forget all the complexities we've been talking about for the last hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years with the temple. We said, oh, there's a temple here. He just walks in, past the place of the Gentiles, into the place where they offer the sacrifices, way beyond that with his troops, walks right in and goes up to the Holy of Holies. And they say, you can't go in there. And he says, who's going to stop me? I'm Pompey Magnus. They say, you can't go in there. That's the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest is allowed in there and only once a year on Yom Kippur. You can't go in there. You will defile it by your presence. Pompey goes, I'm going in. And he rips open the curtain and he walks into the Holy of Holies. And he comes out and he's perplexed. And they, he says, but there's nothing in there. And the people went, duh, invisible God, hello. Uh, Pompey then organizes the temple more or less to be uh, fixed up and uh, moves on his way. Meanwhile, and this is really, really would be leading on to the a sequel to this which you're all familiar with, but just to link it right up, is that obviously by now, Antipater, having successfully negotiated with the Romans to reinstall John Hyrcanus, is <coughs> in a way a quasi-ruler in his own right of the new vassal state of Iudea that is now being swallowed up by the great Roman Empire. As a consequence of that, he's able to place his own two sons as governors of districts. He obviously is still ruling Idumea. John Hyrcanus is the high priest, but has basically been stripped of any military or civil authority. The Sanhedrin is still going, but he takes his two sons, one son, Fazael, who he makes governor over the central district of Judea, including Jerusalem, and his other son, who he places in charge of the Galilee, is Herod. And that is where the story will take us, because when he's about 25 years old, Herod is running around the Galilee as a bit of a local warlord with his own 200 guys, and he commits some war crimes, and he is summoned before the Sanhedrin and he turns up at the Sanhedrin with 25 armed soldiers and says to the Sanhedrin, yes, what exactly were you going to say? And Jochanan Hyrcanus has to run down to the Sanhedrin to stop the trial, to stop the proceedings because he fears what will happen as a result. And eventually, eventually, uh, Jochanan Hyrcanus is actually uh, confronted by a son of his brother 
a son of Yehuda Aristobulus, Antigonus, who decides he would like to be high priest, and thinking that the Nabataeans are going to come and help him again. That's a whole story. He, end up, he ends up taking John Hyrcanus and does a Mike Tyson on him. Do you know what that means? Bites his ear off. He bit his ear off. Very good, mate. He bit his ear off to mutilate him so that he would no longer be fit to serve as the high priest. You can't serve as high priest if you're mutilated. Yochanan Hyrcanus goes into retirement and eventually he's invited. By this time, by this time, Herod, Antipater's son Herod, is in full control. And that is an entire different story about that happens. And that's got to do with the, with the uh, triumvirate wars, the civil war in Rome between Caesar and uh, Octavian, Mark Antony. But eventually Herod gets the rise and he invites uh, Jochenan Hyrcanus back uh, to live, in Jeru- live out his days in Jerusalem, pays him full respect and honours. Uh, but Herod being Herod, after a few short years, he really can't handle the presence of John Hyrcanus. In Jerusalem so he has him killed uh, ultimately once you get to Herod Herod is not so historically conscious as we might be and has no trouble uh, obliterating everybody although Herod married Herod's first wife famously Mariamne Miriam Achashmonait another street in Tel Aviv uh, Mariamne is of course uh, a, a granddaughter of uh, John Hyrcanus II, so that he is able to claim a kind of quasi-Hasmonean status. But really, he's his own thing. He represents really the rise of the House of Antipater from within Idumean Jewry, a direct consequence of John Hyrcanus's famous forced conversion of the Idumeans. So I hope that all ties up together. What we have looked at tonight is really the rise, and, and last week, is the rise and fall of the whole of the Hasmonean experience. Nevertheless, just because the Hasmoneans, just because their state collapsed, and just because they ended up being such a disaster, does not in any way affect the fact that the Jewish people still in a way embody and commemorate their and are inspired by their ideals, their ideals of religious freedom, their ideal of pride in Jewish identity, but a Jewish identity that is not simply, ultimately, if there's a lesson to be learnt from the Hasmoneans, is that that, that, that that spiritual energy that is kindled by the Hanukkahites is not a permission to play power politics. It is a light that is to inspire freedom and the presence of the divine in the world. And that really is the legacy of Hanukkah, the legacy of the Hasmoneans. And I'm thanking you for joining me on that little journey that we've gone on. So well done. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online